Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line, folks. We uh, are continuing a study we started in the last program. We'll get to that in listening to Carl Truman's presentation on uh, classical theology. But just so many things sort of piling up here. Let me just um, begin <clears throat> brief comments on a, a couple of topics. Um, you know, when, when there were theological controversies uh, in the past, uh, up until, you know, the late last century, um, they would always take place over a fairly lengthy period of time without telegraphs and electronic communication, uh, the vast majority of theological controversies um, had to be hashed out in, uh, in print, and it would take time to print things, take time to write things, take time to distribute the printed material. And, you know, there's, there's positives and negatives. Uh, Mormonism got a good start before almost anybody could put together a whole lot of decent documentation. I mean, I E.D. Mean, e. Howe did something early on, but again, distribution of that type of material, um, it, it can allow cults and isms to get going, um, but cults and isms can go, get going a whole lot faster today thanks to um, the internet and things like that. And so... Things like the Alistair Begg issue. In the past, no one, you know, in this situation, if you've been following it, uh, he gave advice and he said, he knew it was controversial. He said in his response, people are going to be upset about this answer. So he, he knew. Um, but he gave advice to a grandmother that a grandchild entering into a transgender wedding, whatever, who even knows that means? I mean, it's, it, it is, it is sinful rebellion to the max. Um, that he specifically asked her, does your grandchild know that you do not countenance this marriage? You do not approve of what's going on here because he has preached sermons on the sinfulness of homosexuality and uh, same-sex mirage and, and things like that. Though I don't think he'd ever use that terminology. Someone told me, and I, and I have I, my trip's coming up. I don't have time to dig on all these things um, that, that he is friendly toward um, women ministers um, or nation of women ministers, that would be relevant to this. It really would be, uh, as far as how that works. Um, but as long as this couple, whatever it is, two males, I, I, I don't know. Um, as long as they are aware of where you stand, um, that you should go to the wedding and you should buy them a gift. And for most everybody's like, but going to the wedding and buying a gift is contradictory to saying that this isn't a wedding and that this isn't actually 
something blessed of God. And my my gut is, my gut feeling is, if he does address this, I, I can't see how he can't. If he does address this, um, what he's going to say is, I think we should leave avenues of communication open. Um, there, you know, because he he made the comment, and, and if you don't, then you're just proving what they're saying is true that Christians are judgmental and they're not open to um, new things. Well, of course, can't be open to this new thing. It's it's a fundamental denial of God's right to order His own creation. But um, that that that's my gut feeling is if he if he is going to hold hold fast and saying. I believe I gave the right advice, and here's why. That's going to be the idea. And obviously, I, I, I cannot imagine how he could not address this issue, come straight out and address not, you know, there's been a bunch of people saying, oh, nope, just cancel right now, that's it, uh, over with. Uh, and, and a bunch of people saying, there's a bunch of these younger firebrands that are out there going, yep, yeah, these older guys are all saying, give them time. Nope, nope, out right now. But and it's like, wow. Um, a lot of you, lot of you young guys, you're gonna, you're gonna wake up 20 years from now going, what was I thinking? I, I, I wouldn't listen to anybody that was older than me, and now I'm looking back going, wow. Um, yikes! I what I didn't know. Anyway. Um, I can't see how he can't. He, he has to come out. He has to make a formal statement. He needs to deal with the serious, considered uh, objections of at least men his own age, at least men who have a similar amount of time in ministry, um, who are saying to him, you've I, I understand keeping lines of communication open, but at what cost? Upon what foundation? Now, I realize in our in our society today, uh, attending uh, attending weddings is just considered to be, you know, something you do between grocery shopping and and going to the movies or something like that. And weddings are not considered to be some type of uh, really important covenant uh, celebration. You you look back, and and weddings were so important to society; they were important outside of just the family that was experiencing it, because the whole society knew that this is what held us together. It was these commitments that held everything together. And so I, I understand why today there would be people who are like, well, it's just, it's just a just a wedding. You know, it's it's just not you know, just, what what's what's the big deal? The reality is your attendance at that wedding um is saying something about what you believe about marriage and what you believe is actually taking place. And from the Christian perspective, if this is two males and one of them is pretending to be a female, which that's what it sounds like. I don't, what else would a transgender wedding be? 
uh, unless it's actually a male and a female, but one of the females is pretending to be a male, so it's a fake gay marriage? I don't know. I've got a picture of my grandfather in my office, a simple Baptist preacher out in the flat, flat, flat lands of Kansas, just where you, you, you can just see forever. And had nothing, had nothing. I mean, they, they grew up eating dirt. And once in a while, I just stop and, and think. I never met him. He died when my dad was 14. But uh, that I don't think I could explain to, to them, uh, to my grandparents, what we have to deal with today. I just don't, they, they wouldn't have the vocabulary back. They'd just be looking at me going, what happened? Did aliens land? What, uh, I, it just, there'd be, be no way. Things have changed so radically. So the important point that Alistair Begg needs to deal with is what his advice means in regards to what marriage is and what attendance at a marriage means. That's what he needs to deal with. Um, this isn't a wedding. Um, it is a act of rebellion against God. It is destructive to the people involved with it. It's destructive to the people attending it. It's destructive to society as a whole. That's why Christians don't attend these things. So we need to know why a man who knows Scripture as well as Alistair Begg knows Scripture would not put those things together. That, that, that is a fair request. It, it truly is. I, I cannot see how anyone could object to that. Um, but that's what needs to take place. Really, really does. And if you want to see what happens down the road, if you don't deal with these issues, look at what happened recently in regards to the United Methodists. Um, I, I don't know why things that your parents say um, all of a sudden just pop into your mind decades and decades later. But I don't remember what the context was. But I just remember my dad saying once, I guess, I guess because it surprised me. Um, because I had imbibed a lot of the IFB influence of, of my youth. Um, I remember my dad saying to me, I have heard a lot of Methodist preachers that could just preach the Bible like nobody else. And, you know, okay, uh, for some reason, it stuck. I, I, I remembered him saying that. And yet, by the time I was in seminary, there was a United Methodist woman in my class. She was a f really nice lady. But if she had two left, if she, if she was a plane, she would have had two left wings. You know, I mean, that's just all there was to it. And I just, the United Methodists were not as bad in the 1980s <laughs> as, as they are now. But still, 
the destruction of the United Methodist denomination. You, 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 you may have seen the video uh, of this abusive mother who brings her 11-year-old son out as a transgender Rachel now at the ELCA convention. I didn't know there were enough ELCA Lutherans left to have a convention, uh, to afford it, to be honest with you. I mean, it's a dying, dying denomination, and appropriately so, but, but this gives you an idea of what it's all about. They are promoting this abused child and someone pointed out on Twitter, you know, you never see the parents, the, the dad. Once in a while you do. Dwayne Wade, you know. Um, but very often it is clearly an overbearing woman uh, who is involved in the abuse of a son. I mean, talk about some real disgusting realities that, that we're seeing. But it's the same. That's that's where it's going. That's where you know the United Methodists, ELCA, and I don't want to see churches in the Alistair Begg circle there in thirty years because there has been a, a fundamental capitulation on vitally important foundational issues. But look, at the same time, I've I've seen a lot of responses from people that have not shown a whole lot of in-depth thought as to why they're saying what they're saying. And you might say, well, but they're saying the right thing. <laughs> okay, but they have to be, they need to know why it's the right thing, or their next generation won't be saying the right thing. That's the problem. So, there you go. Um, completely different subject. Um <laughs> Babylon B <clears throat> posted a picture of Ted Cruz and mutton chops uh, saying that he was preparing for the Civil War. <laughs> you know, it's scary what you can do with stuff like Photoshop and things like that. It really is. Because that looked really real. I mean, that... Um, I mean, I, I know. In five years, we're going to be flooded with uh, fake... AI voiceovers, fake video, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until no one will have any idea what's going on anywhere. Um, you will not be able to trust anything that you see at all. Um, already, I don't trust most of what I see. Um, there's so, so many cool things that I see, and I just go, okay, is that some AI generated thing that you know, looks really real, but it isn't. Uh, that's where we're headed. And a lot of people have been saying, yeah, you know, once, once they lock you in your 15 minute city, then they're going to provide government sponsored, you know, the Apple virtual reality thing. I've never put one on. It's a great temptation because what I'd love to do is um, use one of those things, put one on Rich, and play Descent with Rich. And within seven minutes, 
he'd be looking for the waste paper can because he'd lose it. He'd be blowing cookies everywhere. And <laughs> it's true. He's going, he's agreeing through the window. He is agreeing because uh, we did play Descent once on. We, we, and if you never played Descent, it's a 3D thing. And so you're going up and down, around, and you know, do, doing stuff like this and fighting these robots and stuff. It's, it was a lot of fun back in, back in the day. That was, that was like 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, we, we did it over the network once, and he didn't last long. <laughs> He was he was about as green as the as the Q light on that camera is over there right now. <laughs> so it was pretty easy to beat him because you know once you're too sick to, to function, uh, that's all there is to it. But uh, anyways, they're gonna stick you in your fit fifteen minute cities and they're gonna put your the virtual reality thing on you and then you're just gonna live in this fantasy world anyways. I mean that's what Facebook was doing with its what did it call it? Its virtual reality stuff. Meta or whatever, yeah, I don't know. Um, I've just never put one on. I'm not saying there's something wrong with it. I've just, I'm just like, yeah, you know, I don't have time to play video games. But if like I'm sick or I'm waiting for something in a project, and so I'm sort of stuck for a while, if I play a video game, you know what it is. You want to know what? Descent is fun, but I don't have it set up on a Mac anymore, uh, and. But what I play is is called um, Dune 2000. Remember Dune? From the movie Dune. Uh, it's Command and Conquer with worms and spice and stuff like that. Some of you know what it is. It's, it's, a, it's the computer equivalent of a board game. You know, it's like the old Tobruk. Most of you don't have any idea what that is. But there, there used to be board games that would take just as many hours to play as video games, but you'd use a dice to, you know, will that tank hit my tank? We'll find out. You throw the dice and, and you know, and uh, so, yeah, if, if I do anything like that, it would be Dune 2000. Uh, Cause I, I can, I've ported that into my Mac and I can, I can play it, but yeah, I don't have time to. So it's been, I think I did one like six months ago, you know, played a, a round of it or something like that. So I'm not really overly tempted to these, these virtual reality things, but that's, that's where they're going. Um, and it's, um, it's sort of, it's sort of scary uh, when you see how many people are really amenable to living their life that way. It's the Matrix, yeah. It just plug you into the Matrix and turn you into a battery. You know, you go to work, you work for the elites, and then go home and put your virtual reality on and escape into another world. It's, um, yeah. Play what? Ready Player One was that? What it was? The movie was called something like that. Uh, something along those lines. So, anyways, warning about that. Um, I really wish uh, I, I was mentioned about Ted Cruz and then went off on that tangent. Um. What we were talking about, of course, was what's happening in Texas. And the it's so hard to get real news. Um, the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court did was not actually turn on Texas or something like that. When you really actually dig down to what it was all about, it was about uh, being able to cut razor wire. 
on the part of the border patrol um and it was all about people drowning in the river and they wouldn't be drowning in the river if the idiots in washington i'm sorry the chinese purchased traders in washington uh weren't sponsoring the invasion of the united states which they are i mean i mean we have had millions millions of people cross that border during the biden regime purposefully and we don't know where almost any of them are or what they're going to be doing until the terrorism starts and then there'll be all sorts of finger pointing but nobody it won't matter at that point it'll be all done with anyway but um yeah texas is saying uh cut it all you want we'll put it back up and there does need to be uh, if the nation is going to survive for any length of period whatsoever um the the brakes can't just be slightly tapped um and everything that i'm seeing to be honest with you um is light tapping the brakes <laughs> that's it seems like the best the republicans can come up with is could we not destroy ourselves quite so fast you know instead of no stop we're not doing this anymore there are slight little bright lights ohio now that you all put abortion up to the time of birth you know they're trying to do it in arizona they're trying to do it in every state but there are people out collecting signatures right now to do in in arizona what they did in ohio abortion in the Constitution, up to the point of birth. They won't tell you that. In fact, they will lie to you and tell you, oh, it's only 15 weeks. No, yeah, but it's not. Um, it's all the way up to birth. Uh, and so it's so weird that Ohio would vote that in, but then they also overrode the veto and said, yeah, no more of this men competing with women and no more um, uh, sex assignment surgeries for people under 18 and this, this kind of stuff. And so there are some positive things. Even Utah, which has been going, uh, even Utah passed legislation in the same vein, same general area. And all the Democrats showed up to protest it wearing black. <laughs> okay. Uh if, if the, the the party of death, that's 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 what they are. It's it's horrible. But anyways, I certainly hope that um Texas has a large supply of razor wire. I wish I lived in a in a uh, state that had a, a governor. Um we don't have a governor right now. Um we have a weak minded woman who would never even debate, who presided as attorney general over her own contested election. <laughs> Secretary of State, sorry. Secretary of State, she presided over her own contested election. <laughs> Maricopa County, Chicago, kissing cousins. <laughs> it's just the same level of corruption. Um, and of course, you all heard the video, the audio that just came out, which I guess re you were just telling me was recorded like 11 months ago. Uh, I don't keep up with a lot of local news, to be perfectly honest with you. I just don't have time to. But 
of uh, Carrie Lake and the uh, head of the Republican Party in Arizona trying to buy her off. So she wouldn't, she's running for Senate. Is that, yeah, she's running for Senate. Right. She hadn't announced then. They're trying to, trying to keep her from running for Senate. And so offering her lots and lots and lots of money. And uh, now, now the big question is whose money? Uh, who, who was, who was going to do that is the question. So yeah, we got a lot of bad stuff, bad, bad, bad stuff going on. Um, so Moving back into uh, the theological realm here, I was um, part of Dr. Truman's presentation that we started talking about at the inauguration of the Center for Classical Theology, whatever it's called. Uh, I'm not worried about getting getting any invitations in the future, so I'm not all that excited about it. Um, But uh, part of toward the end, uh, Dr. Truman made reference to a book by a a man who was reflecting on the, his terminal cancer, and one of the arguments that that he made was that you know, but what what he was saying, he he talked about Moltmann and. The suffering God, and this was stuff that was real big back when I was in seminary. Um, a lot of it goes back to, you know, how do you believe in the God of classical theism in light of Auschwitz? And those are not unimportant questions. Um, Western Christianity has had to struggle a great deal after World War II after those two world wars back to back, I mean, there was there was only a generation between them. Thought the first war was the war to end all wars, and it actually just set up the situation for the next. And there are important issues to be addressed in that area. How does how do you explain Auschwitz? And the the answers for many European theologians basically had to do with abandoning biblically necessary elements of the doctrine of God. Um, So, in essence, God's immutability God's decree, God accomplishing a purpose in this world, uh, that was that had to be sacrificed for a suffering God. And of course, there is language that's appropriate of talking about a suffering God in regards to Jesus, the God-man suffered. So there, there is a realm in which you can make that assertion, but this was more of a evacuation of any element of transcendence so as to bring God into the suffering and try to eliminate asking the question, but couldn't God have done something about this? Let alone the question, is God glorifying himself in this? These are important issues. And 
Dr. Truman's assertion in, and, and I didn't even mark any of this stuff. I'll, you'll see why in just a second. Uh, Dr. Truman's assertion was, from his perspective, the man, who I assume has since died, um, the man found solace and consolation and strength not in a suffering God who suffers like he does from cancer, but in the transcendent, unchanging God who is accomplishing his purposes. And hence, that gives meaning to his cancer, to his suffering in this life, uh, and gives meaning to the entirety of his life, not just the end of it or how it ended. And that's very important. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, uh, meeting with one of the elders at PRBC the day before he died, and the encouragement in hearing his very weak, because he was very weak, but firm affirmation that the entirety of his um, confidence was to be found in the imputed righteousness of Christ, and that he was looking forward to being in the presence of his Savior. And so, <clears throat> I, I really get that. And so that was in the back of my mind, and then I'm, I'm doing preparation for a class, this, this trip I've got coming up. It would be more than the biggest challenge I've ever faced if all I had was the five debates, but that's not all I have. I'm teaching an entire intensive class. I, I, you know, if, if you're not a professor, if you've not taught, you don't, you don't know. Um, intensive classes are tough for students. They're, they're brutal for the professor. You're talking about eight hours of teaching a day. And I'm not the kind of teacher that can just sit up there and drone through notes or read from the book. I've had professors like that. And they, they got paid and, oh well. Um, but that's not how I am. And so I'm doing reading in Baptist church history because that's what it's about. And one of the things that has struck me, now we're using... There we go. We're using the three volume. This is volume two. Oh, this is volume three. Uh, the Baptist by Tom Nettles. Uh, that's what they used before I came on staff. This is what they, in fact, I think Tom Nettles actually taught it. And so I'm like, well, I'm not going to change that. I mean, try to keep it as consistent as possible. <clears throat> One of the, the things that has struck me, and this has struck me, of course, in teaching about the Reformers, I think one of the reasons that we are different today, um, you know, I forget which modern writer it was who said that the doctrine of justification no longer rings the bells of the hearts of modern man. And it's true, when you, when you read Luther, when you read 
contemporaries in the Reformation. You see what they were willing to risk, willing to put their lives on the line. When, when you realize that, that um, Calvin's Geneva produced a long line of martyr missionaries who graduated from the school in Geneva and immediately went directly south into Italy. And almost every single one of them died under the Roman Catholic Church in Italy because they felt they needed to give their lives to bring this message of justification to Roman Catholics. And I've often thought, and and you, you can't avoid but think about, why have things changed? Oh, we still have conferences where we talk about the solas and stuff like that. But then you go home and you turn the TV on and you watch an NFL football game and it's the farthest thing from run, right? So <clears throat> why, why, what's changed? And I think one of the th- main things that's changed is we don't see death on a regular basis. Even on television, things like that. I, I've used the illustration since I'm a Trekkie. Uh, one of the first times I talked about this, I had just seen the Next Generation episode where the Enterprise encounters her sister ship. I think it was Yamato, if I recall. And it's been infected with this computer virus and that eventually infects the Enterprise 2. But of course, they survive. But the point is, the Yamato explodes right in front of them. And there's, what, 1,100 people on that ship. And they're all killed in an instant. And 48 minutes later, um, everybody's right as rain. (laughs) You know? Hey, the episode's over. You got to go on to the next episode. You can't, you know, the the crew may even be joking with one another, you know, by that point in time. 1,100 people just died right in front of them. So we, we see death out there, but even in most of our churches, um, funerals sparsely attended, um, and we're uncomfortable around people who've lost someone recently. We don't really know what to say, and we don't know how to interact with them, and stuff like that. But I was, well, my my grandmother died when I was a teenager. I guess that was the first death really close to me. Well, my my Uncle John, um, but they they weren't people, you know, that I knew really, really well. Um, And so... I was I didn't really see death until I started working as a hospital chaplain to see it happening right in front of you. When you study the reformers, they all lost children in infancy. They all lost children in infancy. Luther, Calvin. Um and that was that was the norm. There were there were times in history where a woman would have to have 10 live births to get one through to maturity. That's how 
bad things were. Um, and so everybody experienced this. You couldn't put it out of your mind. You couldn't entertain yourself out of a regular, daily recognition of your own mortality. Because if, if you're walking through the village and there's a corpse along the side of the road and you knew that person and you know that they've died of this plague you don't understand, you don't know how to protect yourself from it. There are no masks, there are no inoculations. Um, you cannot help but think about the brevity of life and about what's really important. And we can't get people to see what's really important anymore. One of the hardest things to, you, you deal with in, in talking to modern people, I mean, I, I don't know if this is true, but I saw, I, I saw a thing, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it'll pop up here, but, but I saw a thing that said, according to some major uh, study, 30% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ+. But only 28% identify as Christian. Now, just in passing, may I just note, if you look at each of the generations and see that going up, that tells you this has nothing to do with I was born that way. It has nothing to do with that at all. None. Um, but anyway, we, we don't see death around us. We don't, you can't get people to really recognize what's foundational, what's important, what will allow a culture or a nation or a people to continue and not die out. Simple, uneducated peasants knew all about this stuff hundreds of years ago. Educated, iPad-carrying, digital Gen Z people are clueless about how to keep a nation going and what's necessary for a people to continue on because they don't know what's important. And one of the reasons for that is they never have to deal with death. They don't recognize the brevity of life. They're just focused upon their own, primarily, sexual fulfillment. Because that's all they've got. That's all secularism gives you. You are an animal. We can't even say you're highly evolved because that, that Im implies directionality and true Darwinism doesn't have directionality. So... But you are an evolved hominid, and all we can really give you is enjoy it now, get as many O's as you can, um, and then who cares if there's anybody left after you? Don't worry about kids. Don't worry about family. Don't worry about carrying on your name. None of that stuff matters. It's all about you. And when those people vote and control what happens, 
<laughs> that culture is dead. DOA cannot survive and will not survive. It'll, it'll just destroy itself, which is exactly what we're watching happening all around us right now. So, losing children, losing wives in childbirth, as I've been reading about the Baptists and great Baptist leaders of the past, so many of them were married to more than one woman, not because of divorce, but because either natural death of diseases, smallpox, and everything else, or very often, childbirth is dangerous. Very dangerous. Not just to the child, but to the mother. They would be on their second or third wife. And they would have many, many dead children that they had to do the funerals for. And that changes how you view everything. Are you going to interrupt me here? You're, you're describing virtually both sides of my family. Whether it's my grandmother, who had 13 children, first one in 1915, she lost four before the age of 10. Yeah. Okay. Or my, well, my great-grandfather, three different wives, all died, my, gra my great-grandmother died in childbirth with, well, as a result of childbirth, a week after my grandfather was born. This was the way life yeah. was. It was. And the thing is, their children then lived through the Depression. Yeah. You know, my, 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 <clears throat> my great-grandfather died at 58 in 1929. And suddenly my grandfather is running his restaurant at the age of 19. And the business and all that that he built. Yeah. <clears throat> and that means the generations for centuries and centuries and centuries before us have seriously thought about theodicy. Theodicy is the, the justification of God's existence in light of the existence of evil. And when I look at the childish, I was going to mention this, I, I forgot, um, the childishness of some of the open theists on the internet. I, I saw someone sent me a link that um, a certain individual, I'm not even giving give him credit by naming him, he does, does not deserve any of it, um, was going to be posting an apology to me. And I, the person who said it to me, I, I texted back, I said, that'll be a punch in the face. I didn't believe it from the, from the start. And from what I've been told, I was right. But Rich tells me that he looked at the comments on this video and that there was someone, I could probably pull it up from the thing, but I, it's looking at the clock. I'm not getting very far anyways. <clears throat> someone made comment on the video about allegedly something that I had said to someone. And it was just such a twisting of what I have said in the past. And so before I read this, I'll, I'll go ahead and comment on this. 
someone said, well, you need to debate infant damnation. Um, I cannot think of a topic that would be more worthless to debate with someone who doesn't believe what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty and God's decree than that. That would be similar to the weird guy in St. Louis years and years ago, I think 1998, 99, somewhere around there. They arranged a debate with this guy. Uh, oh, yeah. He was the guy who wrote... Um, I thought I had his book. You know, I may be using it to hold other other books because up uh, because that's the only worthless worth of it. Anyways, there was this guy and what? No, uh. Uh-uh. Um. Anyway, this guy wanted to do a debate. Um, on perseverance of the saints, but he wanted to put in a contract that I have to sign that I would not make reference to or mention the other four points of Calvinism <laughs> to debate the fifth point of Calvinism. And I said, you're nuts. Um, that is the result of these things that lead up to it. <clears throat> and the same way, if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, and these people don't, um, if, if, if you're offended by the God of the Bible, and they are, then the pastoral subject of infants who die in infancy, which obviously has to be handled with tremendous respect toward God, toward Scripture, toward the Church. See, one of the problems is this, this topic is almost always allowed to be individualistic. And you'll never accomplish anything there. You, you, if you want biblical answers on these subjects, then you have to see that we don't live on an island. We live in a community. Our families are part of a community. And your loss, the last, the last funeral I was at was for a child who died at birth that I spoke at. Less than a month ago. Okay? Almost none of these people on the internet are actually pastors. Are actually involved in ministry. So, forgive me for not having a scintilla of concern for their opinions. They have not done anything that I can see that would, for a second, make me go, hmm, I ought to think about what this person's saying. Look at what they've accomplished in life. Nope. No reason to. None. But this topic, if it's going to be addressed, has to be addressed pastorally and in the context of the church. And unlike, again, my critics, um, I have worked as a hospital chaplain. I've published in the field. Most people don't know that if you don't watch the program and hear the few programs where I've mentioned it. But I've been there, and you don't make that a subject of debate. If a, if a family in Apologia Church wants to sit down with me and some of the other pastors 
and talk about biblically what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty and salvation and the death of infants, then we'll do it. We'll be happy to do it, and we'll be happy to open up the scriptures, and we'll be happy to consider the broad spectrum of things. And we'll look at the various sides. You can find long lists of, and, and, and it is the majority view, even amongst Reformed people, that every child that dies in infancy is of the elect. In fact, that's what the Westminster Confession says. It uses the phrase, elect infants. Okay, how do you defend that biblically? What are elect infants? Well, obviously we're dealing here with <clears throat> speculative theology. We're going, well, in light of this and this and this, I put it together this way. We are not given anything in Scripture about this. We're given, <clears throat> we're given uh, David and, and the child that dies uh, being in the realm, realm of dead, the dead, Sheol. Uh, that doesn't really tell you much. And so the very idea of debating it is just disgusting and vile. Anybody who comes up with that should just crawl under a rock and never come back out. You would actually want to use that as a debating subject? You're disgusting. You're shameful. You need to grow up. Or or get born again or something. Because you got a problem. You've got a problem. Now, if people want to sit down and talk about, historically, what have been the various views? Well, you've got limbo in Roman Catholicism. It wasn't a dog, dogma, but what, what's that all about? And you know that, that deals with sacramentalism, and you, did, you, did, and you got all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, you've got other people who say, well, hey, if, if you just simply say that every single infant that dies in infancy goes straight to heaven, then abortions become the greatest heaven-filling device that's ever come along. Well, how are you going to respond to that? I've heard people use it. I've heard people use it. And sadly, that's almost always on the street corner, outside the abortion clinic, whatever else it is. It may not be the most amenable place for a meaningful conversation. I've always said God has just as much freedom to be gracious in the matter of those who die in infancy as those who are adults. Let the judge of all the earth do right. But I'm not going to sit here and pretend that there's a Bible passage that answers all these questions so you can just be dogmatic about it. Because there isn't. There just isn't. So the very idea of debating it, wow, I don't even... Do these people sit around at night and think of these things? I, I, I feel for them. I truly do feel for them. That's, that's how cults get started. And I think some of these guys are going to be starting their own cults before long. So with that in, in mind, I wanted to get to this. I don't know that I'm going to get... I mentioned Carl Truman. I did sort of say Carl Truman. <laughs> Andrew Fuller. I just want to give you, read you a section here because I think it, it, it really struck me this morning as I was reading it. 
Earlier theological ideas created doubts about encouraging the lost to call in the name of the Lord. The doctrine of election, as his instructors in the faith applied it, had been a hindrance to him. The plain examples of Scripture, however, taught him a different lesson. He concluded, the doctrine of election is the greatest encouragement, instead of discouragement, to prayer. The God who has decreed what we shall possess of the things of this life has decreed that it will be in the way of industry. We do not shirk our work because of God's decree, neither should we be slothful in the business of our soul because our final state is decreed. The trying days of lingering sickness and eventual death of a six-year-old daughter demonstrate the chastened intensity of Fuller's witness. Of the 11 children that Fuller had by his first wife, only two survived their parents. Nine died before they did. Nine. After falling ill in December 1785, she died on May 30th, 1786. That's a long, that's a long decline. That's six months. That's, wow. John Ryland Jr. describes her as a very intelligent and amiable child and gave much hopeful evidence of early piety. Now, note, did you hear that? Gave much hopeful evidence of early piety. They don't hold to this idea of um, age of discretion or something along accountability and so on and so forth. <clears throat> They're looking for hopeful evidence of early piety. During these days, she took great delight in reading accounts of the conversion of little children and seemed to love those children for their godliness. In March, during an extended visit to the Rylands in Northampton, Fuller talked lovingly to her about prayer. She asked him to pray for her. Fuller responded, Why do you wish me to pray for you, my dear? That God would bless me and keep me and save my soul. Do you think then that you are a sinner? Yes, Father. What is sin, my dear? Telling a story. That would be lying in our language. What then, I said. You remember, do you, my having corrected you once for having told a story? Yes, Father. And are you grieved for having so offended God? Yes, Father. I asked her if she did not try to pray for herself. She answered, I sometimes try, but I do not know how to pray. I wish you would pray for me till I can pray for myself. He continued to speak with her, and she eventually said, I am afraid I should go to hell. My dear, said I, who told you so? Nobody, but I know if I do not pray to the Lord, I must go to hell. Fuller records, I then went to pray with her with many tears. Fuller often carried her in his arms into the fields and talked with her about the joy of dying and being with Christ, where holy men and women and holy children would be singing Hosanna to the son of David. Ryland composed a hymn for the young girl, one verse of which says, A helpless creature I was born, and from the womb I strayed. I must be wretched and forlorn without thy mercy's aid. But Christ can all my sins forgive and wash away their stain, and fit my soul with him to live and in his kingdom reign. One day, as Fuller was reading scripture to her, he found her to be quite solemn and unhappy. She remained silent for a while, and then asked if she was afraid that she would not go to the blessed world of which he had been reading. She answered, yes. He responded, what makes you afraid, my dear? Because, said she, with a tone of grief that pierced me to the heart, I have sinned against the Lord. True, my dear, said I, you have sinned against the Lord. But the Lord is more ready to forgive you if you are grieved for offending him than I can be to forgive you when you are grieved for offending me. 
and you know how ready I am to do that. He then told her of the great grace of God and the love of Christ to sinners. I just stopped to say, is this how people would respond today? Or would not the the temptation, and I use the term temptation, would not the temptation be, oh, honey, you're just fine. You're just fine. Don't worry about these things. That's what we'd say today. It wouldn't be pray. It wouldn't be talking about forgiveness. It wouldn't be giving illustrations of God's forgiveness. No, you're you're just fine. Fuller became so affected by her approaching death that, as he says, that the agony of my spirit produced a most violent, bilious complaint, which quite laid me aside for several days. I then reflected that I had sinned in being so inordinately anxious. We don't read a lot from this period. So you need, you need to hear what he just said. Because I don't think a lot of people have the background to understand what he was concerned about. He says, The agony of my spirit produced a most violent, bilious complaint. A complaint against God. Which quite laid me aside for several days. I then reflected that I had sinned in being so inordinately anxious. How many Christians have such a high view of God's honor and glory to even begin to understand what that sentence means. See, when I read that, I immediately remember, again, uh, a, a book I read in seminary that, or right after seminary, I think, it might have been during seminary, that just really hit me. And it was the biography of Jonathan Edwards, and it, in it was the words of Sarah, his wife, when she received word of his death from a botched, botched, botched vaccine. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> her first thought was to pray to God and say, God, do not allow me to respond to the loss of my husband in any way that would detract from your glory. That was her first thought. That's Fuller's first thought here. His dear, precious six-year-old daughter is dying, and he knows she's going to die, and there's nothing he can do about it. And instead of what you get from so many people today um, about, you know, go ahead and scream at God and, you know, all the rest of this kind of self-centered, I'm not really his creature, his glory really doesn't mean anything to me type stuff. Here Fuller recognizes that he has sinned in his anxiety and his complaint against God. That that is the response of someone who is facing these tragedies of life and they've already built the solid foundation upon which to do so. You, You don't get that kind of maturity 
by all of a sudden reading a few books on the subject once you're in the midst of the trial. You've got to have those foundations laid long before, long before it hits. It says his own sickness caused him to be absent from his daughter when she finally died. Upon her death, Fuller wrote an 11 stanza hymn. One of the stanzas says, Nor mourn to excess her loss, but say, tis well. What matter when she died, if but to God? If reared for him, though young or old she fell, his bosom is her last, her blessed abode. His daughter, Mary, while in school in Northampton, felt that God had granted her a true faith in the gospel. Fuller wrote a series of letters to her. These were designed for both encouragement and caution. Given her personal perception of the state of things, Fuller wrote, If there be any doubt in the matter, it is whether those feelings which you enjoy be excited by the Lord's presence and whether the sense you have of the greatness of your sin does lead you to bewail and hate it. Boy, when I think of when I think of, well, I don't think he'd mind. Kevin Johnson was taking some classes at uh, Golden Gate years ago when I was teaching, was it Greek or Hebrew? It was one of the biblical languages. Anyways, he had just had a church growth class. And he came in and sat down. He just, he was going like this. He said, yeah, we just had a list of words given to us that we should never use in church lest we hinder the growth of the church, and one of them was repentance. <laughs> uh, because what, what he's saying to her cannot be understood by anyone who does not recognize the centrality of repentance to conversion. He did not mean to suggest otherwise, but encouraged her to suspect your own heart, which is deceitful, if she felt herself a great sinner, Fuller, Fuller only wanted to add, you are a much greater sinner, my dear, than you are aware of. An interest in the dying love of Christ is of far greater importance than you have ever yet conceived. You see, when you diminish the power and depth of sin, you diminish the power of the Savior. In fact, self-examination would be advised for you are at present, my dear, but little acquainted with the snares and temptations of the world and the fickleness and sinfulness of your own heart. This should not discourage her, however, for Christ is a greater Savior. If he is precious to your soul and you are willing to give up your sins and be his servant forever, though your sins be as scarlet, yet the blood of Christ is sufficient to make you pure as snow. If God has begun the work, it will be carried on. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth from all sins. Believe his gospel, commit your soul to him as a perishing sinner, and you will be everlastingly saved. These are the words of a father to his daughter. Relatives, children, friends, and parishioners received letters of this sort from Fuller. They reveal a pastor's heart of love for sinners and love for a sinner's gospel. And remember, he lost nine of 11 from his first wife and then his wife. I can imagine a lot of people that would use that as a excuse to become rather hard over time. Death was the constant companion of Fuller. Only two of his 11 children by his first wife survived him. Three of the six by his second wife died in infancy. 
So if I'm doing my math, that's up to 12. During his first wife's final months, she fell victim to severe emotional and mental distress, weeping, pacing, worrying to the point of wild despair. Most of the time, she did not know Fuller or that she was living at home. I think we know what that was, sadly. She recovered for one full day and then lapsed into her deranged condition. She gave birth to a child before she died. The child died some weeks after her mother. Fuller commented to Mr. Gardner, his father-in-law, concerning this trial. Poor soul, what she often said is now true. She was not at home. I am not her husband. These are not her children. But she has found her home, a home, a husband, and a family better than these. A wayward son gave unimaginable grief to Fuller. After living a profligate life, the son, Robert, wrote to his father asking for his forgiveness. His father answered, You may be assured that I cherish no animosity against you. On the contrary, I do from my heart freely forgive you. But that which I long to see in you is repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, without which there is no forgiveness from above. Later in the same letter, Fuller said, You had a you have had a large portion of God's preserving goodness, or you had ere now perished in your sins. Think of this and give thanks to the Father of mercies, who has hitherto preserved you. Think, too, how you have requited him, and be ashamed for all you have done. Nevertheless, do not despair. For as far as you have gone and as low as you have sunk in sin, yet if from thence you return to God by Jesus Christ, you will find mercy." Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, even the chiefs of sinners. If you had been ever so sober and steady in your behavior towards men, yet without repentance toward God and faith in Christ, you could not have been saved. And if you return to God by him, though your sins be great and aggravated, yet you will find mercy. In March 1809, after a lingering illness, Robert died and was buried at sea. His deportment through his last months had been exemplary, and Fuller entertained some hope that he might have been an object of mercy. So are far from home, this is Fuller, some are far from home and have no friend in their dying moments to speak a word of comfort. But this is near. When Jonah was compassed about by floods, when the billows and waves passed over him, he prayed prayed to the Lord, and the Lord heard him. Here he paused and wept, and many in the congregation wept also. He could, he could close only by solemnly charging the sinner to apply for mercy, for if it were rejected after having been so near and of such easy access, it would be a swift witness against him. Writing to Dr. Ryland within two weeks of his own death, Fuller said, I have pre- preached and written much against the abuse of the doctrine of grace, but that doctrine is all my salvation and all my desire. I have no other hope than from salvation by mere Sovereign, efficacious grace through the atonement of my Lord and Savior. With this hope, I can go into eternity with composure. One day, when his deacons were speaking to him and commending him on the enviable position he had of soon being a state of blessed immortality, Fuller assented, lifted up his hands, and exclaimed, If I am saved, it will be by great and sovereign grace. On May 7th, the Lord's Day, he heard his congregation singing in the chapel and called to his daughter, Sarah. He said, I wish I had strength enough to do what, Father? To worship, child. My eyes are dim. His family helped raise him in the bed. He continued in an attitude of worship for nearly an hour, clasped his hands, 
fixed his eyes upward, fell back, and died. What? Why? Why read all this and not get back to what we were supposed to be doing and being relevant and stuff? I really think that when you take the theology of Scripture and you live it, and you live it in the face of death, it makes an imprint and it changes you in a way that all the seminary education world can't. You can know all the statements. But when you've lost 12 of your children and you still trust God and in fact you repent of having questioned God's goodness while your little six-year-old daughter is dying, where does that come from? That comes from a changed soul, a changed heart. That's where it comes from. And so much of our conversations and discussions are surface level and won't mean anything in eternity. Because we don't make that application. We, we, we haven't experienced that in our own lives. And one of the main reasons is we are constantly praying to not experience that in our own lives. I'm not saying Fuller was going, could you please kill most of my children? He wasn't praying that. <coughs> but the fact that most of his children died in infancy did not turn him into a bitter hater of God. And yet how many people, all these deconstructors running around today, well, I discovered that I'm, I'm a transgender child of God, but the church hated me. Wouldn't you? But, oh. I, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say. So I was going to go from that back into, um, into, you got to leave and, yeah. Let's try to get a few more things done on it. Um, get a little bit farther through it. I mean, it's not like there's a lot. It was fairly short. <clears throat> but at least we have a solid foundation for discussing it now. <laughs> a little heavy, not your normal lighthearted stuff, I, I realize, but um, important stuff. All right, let's, uh, let's dig into it here. Uh, picking up where we left off. One of the things I'm going to say about classical theology is a lot of it is contemplative. The purpose of classical theology is not to enable the city to flourish. It is not to help people give up alcoholism. It is not to save somebody's marriage. All of those things may be very, very good things. But one of the things that you find when you read the early church theologians or the medieval theologians, or even many of the Puritans, is that the contemplation of God is seen as an end in itself. It is not instrumental to something else. Okay, Ele elements of truth with some things that are concerning. 
Um, every religion has some kind of beatific vision concept to it. Um, whether it's Eastern religions where it's really an emptying of oneself and a communion with the universe to where my individuality is wiped out to medieval mystics who will write pages and pages and pages on the beatific vision and the contemplation of God in and of himself and, and issues like that. And it does seem that Dr. Truman, he, he will, and he'll repeat this later on. He said in a, in another context, about a year and a half, two years ago, that he's been having his classes, he's been reading some of Thomas's prayers to his classes, and they're like, we've never heard anything like this. This is, we don't hear anything like this in our church. Hey, that's, that's dangerous. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's how you get people to go to a different church. <laughs> well, they're, well, they're, where they will hear the prayers of Thomas Aquinas, and there's only one where that's going to happen. But, There is, there is truth in the fact that Scripture gives us ground and warrant for meditating upon the glories of our God. If heavenly worship is focused upon that, then obviously earthly worship should likewise um, be relevant should be should partake of that. But there's something I want to suggest. Um, merely the contemplation of the glory of God is not what I see people doing in Scripture. They confess His glory, His power, His worth, and everything, but they always, they always connect that to what He has done that reveals his glory, and that is the redemption of his people, his covenant faithfulness. And here's the issue. What good is it if you can cross every T and dot every I in knowing to the nth degree the depth of Thomas Aquinas's demonstration of doctrines about God that have almost nothing to do with your life. If, at the same time, you then hold Thomas's view of how you know God, and as a result, don't know God. Now, I'm pretty convinced that what you're going to see over time, over time, that means not Immediately, but time can be, you know, 20, 30 years. What you can see over time is people going, you know what? You know, when I first started doing this, I was into this. Yeah, you know, we, we, we disagree with Thomas's soteriology and ecclesiology and sacramentology and all that stuff. But it's, boy, man, his, his theology proper is just, just mind-blowing. I think what you see over time is that then goes to, 
And then the people who follow Thomas and the great Thomas scholars, man, they, oh, they're mind blowing too. And they're just awesome. And maybe this soteriology stuff isn't all that important. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a much wider expression that, that we can, that we can embrace here. Because I mean, if, if Thomas could have these level of insights, if he, if, if R.C. Sproul could call him the greatest theologian in the Christian church, then his wild dedication to the mass as a propitiatory sacrifice can't really be all that bad. Right? You can see the, the line of, of thought. And someone doesn't necessarily have to walk that line of thought, but there's not much that's going to keep him from doing it. And what he says is, you know, the, the contemplation of God, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't save a marriage. But the God who desires to be contemplated and has revealed himself, has revealed himself as the God who enters into covenant relationship with his people as Savior. And the how of that cannot simply be put on some low level down here. Well, we'll get to that later. So, are you truly contemplating God if you do not have a relationship with Him? Are you truly contemplating God? Is the contemplation of God actually the, you know, this, this intellectual mountain that you climb? You know, I, I didn't bring it up, but I mean, do I have to pull out the book on divine simplicity and reread that section about modalities and everything else that leaves almost everybody going, huh? Master majority of Christians have no way of understanding what's being said. So, is it getting over that mountaintop that now I can see God and 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 getting your mind to go, okay, um, God has revealed His attributes to us and. Or to glorify him for his omniscience and his omnipresence and and his immutability and and but they're all the same thing. And I've just got to get to the point where in my mind that you know because I, I want to think like God and and God doesn't distinguish and so so is is this what contemplation is? Or do we gladly accept in toto what anyone can read here? Seminary degree or not, Greek or Hebrew or not, yeah, Greek or Hebrew or not. I love teaching Greek or Hebrew, but Greek or Hebrew or not, you can still understand what this says. <clears throat> I take this, God reveals himself, and I am certainly in awe of who he is. But the Christian message is, and then I am in awe of the fact that in light of who he is, he has condescended to call me into relationship with him. If you don't have that, if you stick the Roman Catholic sacramental system in there, does that have some impact? Maybe? Possibly? Yeah, I think it does. I think it has to. I think it has to. And, I, and, it, and it's not, you know, I've, some of these guys go, 
Oh, there it is again. Go swim the Tiber thing. As they, they just, just try to dismiss it. And not think about what's actually being said here. Does, can you actually, in a Christian fashion, contemplate God while holding to a false gospel? And I think a lot of these guys are just coming to the conclusion he didn't. Thomas didn't. He was, he was, he was good. He was good. And that means you can't be concerned about the Mass and sacramentology. I, I mean, I suppose what you could do is say, well, yeah, the stuff that's come afterwards, indulgences, you could, you could argue purgatory, though Aquinas believed in purgatory, just not as specifically dogmatically as it would eventually be finally codified in the 15th century. But that's probably the direction they would go. I don't know. But all I'm, I'm, I'm simply asking, if you want to talk about con- contemplating God, is that done through classical theology or through the revelation of Scripture? As far as classical theology expresses what's in Scripture, great, fine, wonderful, when it becomes its own evolved, developed, great tradition, that's where you that's what that's where the problem is. And see what you guys don't understand is you can poo-poo me, you can cancel me, you can tell your students that I'm a, a horrible heretic. Fact of the matter is, there are a lot of pastors, deacons, leaders in churches that are listening to what I'm saying, and they have the common commitment that I have to scripture, and they're going, Yeah, yeah, that's this is what we've always said. Um, we don't want to be changing that anytime soon. Uh, so, yeah. The contemplation of God as God is not a significant part of modern Protestant, Reformed, or Evangelical piety. Um, I, I don't... I'm not sure how he's defining Reformed piety. Um, when I read the first chapters of the Institutes, I am forced to contemplate God from a biblical perspective. But if what he means is um, a lot of churches do not emphasize a, a deep understanding of how God has revealed himself, okay, um, there's always room for rebalancing and emphasizing what's really important. But my concern is, it seems like the new classical theology movement substitutes its peculiar understanding and application of a Thomistic definition of simplicity or inseparable operations or whatever. Um, These side issues as if that is definitional of actual contemplation of God. And so nobody else is doing it but them. And if you really want to contemplate God, then you've got to do it the way that that they're doing. So I want to, in in the rest of this lecture, uh, offer some thoughts on why I return to classical theology. And by classical theology, I'm really meaning the theology hammered out in the early church, preserved in the Middle Ages, and then codified in the sections dealing with things like the doctrine of God in the great confessions of the 16th and 17th centuries. Now, that's a... 
<clears throat> broad, broad area. And anybody knows that there are outlines of consistency through there, but there's also all sorts of differences. And notice his terminology, my return to classical theology, which again, in a webcast I heard a few years ago, 18 months ago, two years ago, whatever it was, um, he identifies him being in 2016 when he was working on that book on Owen. But I find it odd, my return to classical theology. Um, I didn't know that he had ever repudiated it, but um, he, he sort of makes a statement along that line. And I'm coming at this, I say, as a historian, as an intellectual historian, not as a theologian or as a philosopher. I could put it facetiously and say there was only one original theologian in Geneva in the 16th century, and they burned him because of his originality. <laughs> the last thing you wanted to be in the 16th century was an original theologian. Uh, sadly, that's in re reference to Servetus, and Servetus wasn't in Geneva. He obviously was elsewhere. Remember, Calvin uh, sought to, Calvin risked his life to seek to be of benefit to Servetus. He snuck back into Paris when he was a wanted man to meet with Servetus, and Servetus didn't meet with him. Uh, Calvin knew where he was for years before letting that information get out and get to the Inquisition. And it was <clears throat> the night before Servetus was to be burned by the Inquisition. He escaped in his nightgown over, he wanted to use the restroom and uh, snuck over the, the wall and got away and made a beeline for Geneva. So there's a little bit of the historical aspect. He knows all that. He knows all that. His point was they weren't trying to be um, unique, new in their theology. I agree. I agree. And the reason for that was you wanted your theology grounded in the tradition of the church because you assumed that the tradition of the church was basically correct unless it was proved to be inadequate by the teaching of Scripture. How do you demonstrate that a tradition is inadequate by the teaching of Scripture without being a biblicist? If you say that the Bible cannot be interpreted outside of, say, the Nicene faith, then how do you examine tradition by Scripture? If tradition is necessary for your understanding of Scripture. This is, <clears throat> this is not some new thing. This is an important issue that must be understood. And it is not a chicken and egg type thing, but it can start getting close to that. Um, so that's a, that's a good, that's a good place to um, call it quits for now. Uh, well, if I hadn't run into all that stuff from Fuller this morning, um, in my studies, we would have probably gotten through all of it today. But I hope it was worthwhile for those of you who listened um, to think on those vitally important things and from a church history perspective to recognize that this does help us to understand why we struggle at times to understand why people did what they did in church history. 
And my final statement on that will be, we struggle because we're not quite as grounded in reality as they were. Our modern world protects us from the daily reminder that we are mortal and that this life passes us by. And, you know, I'm about to go out and get in a vehicle, drive down the road, and that's a pretty safe vehicle, but there are still even bigger vehicles than mine on the road. And the number of times that I've gone through an intersection... I started dri- I mentioned this on Twitter. Started driving in September 17th, 1977. That was when I got my learner's permit. <clears throat> How many intersections have I driven through in that time period? And I've never been in an accident. I was in the passenger side in an accident. My son was driving. But I've never been in an accident. That's grace. That's grace. Because I imagine that if not this day, this week, someone here in Phoenix will die in a traffic accident. Um, And that doesn't make me better than them. But if God's got a purpose and he's trying to accomplish anything, he better be in control of all those traffic accidents too. And those open theists, they can't have that. They can't have that. That's why they can't even touch the Bible as far as the source of authority. Anyways, thanks for listening to The Dividing Line. We will be back with you, Lord willing, next week. And then I think it's the week after that. So when I head out, please be praying. Preparations still undergoing, still ongoing. Pray that I get it all done. I appreciate everyone's support in doing it. We'll see you next week. God bless.